0: You are listening to From Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadlow. Episode 11, The Revolt of the Maccabees. Most of you probably know at least the basic story of Hanukkah. The evil Greeks sought to impose a new culture and set of values, Hellenism, on its Jewish subjects. Some bad Jews gladly accepted Hellenism, throwing out their Judaism and assimilating into Greek culture. A few of the really, really bad Jews went further than this and sought to help the Greeks destroy Judaism. But a few Jews, a loyal remnant led by Judah Maccabee, his father and his brothers, rose up in defense of Judaism. They recaptured the defiled temple from the evil Greeks, and with God's miraculous help, when the day's worth of oil lasted for eight days, repurified the temple and made all well again. The story, it turns out, is primarily a modern one. It takes bits and pieces of ancient understandings of Hanukkah and refracts them through a lens of modern concerns and sensibilities. A story that emphasizes a clash of cultures between Hellenism and Judaism and the risk of assimilation appealed to modern Western Jews. It is not very surprising that the Israeli version of this story emphasizes the proto-Zionism of the Maccabees, rather than the risk of assimilation. It becomes less a story about culture, and more one of military and political conflict, leading to the birth of an independent Jewish state. Yet our earliest interpretation of the Festival of Hanukkah does not emphasize the themes of culture conflict, miracle, or nationalism. Rather, the festival letter sent in 124 BCE from Jerusalem to Egypt, states simply that it is a Feast of Tabernacles in the month of Kislev, which celebrates the purification of the temple. More than 300 years later, the rabbis would offer a different version of the story that effaces the Maccabees and introduces the now well-known miracle of the oil. Two episodes ago, I discussed Hellenism and emphasized both the fluidity of the concept and its wide appeal to Jews at the time. Such an appeal is clearly at odds with the story known to most of us that opposes Judaism to Hellenism. Yet as I also mentioned in that episode, that story was not made up of whole cloth in modernity. Its basic structure appears in an ancient text, 2 Maccabees, one of the most important texts, in fact, for understanding the causes of the Maccabean Revolt. In this episode, I will attempt to reconstruct the events leading up to the Revolt, some of which our ancient sources themselves tried deliberately to obscure. I will paint a rather different picture of the Maccabean Revolt, one that understands its causes to be the result of petty jealousies, family feuds, and some stunningly bad luck. As the rabbis well understood, Hanukkah then originated not as a celebration of the miracle of the oil, but as a commemoration of the event that provided legitimacy to the Hasmonean kings, the descendants of the Maccabees. First, as usual, let me say a word about our sources. The two most important sources for reconstructing the Maccabean revolt are by far the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. These two books are now part of the Apocrypha, which, as I previously mentioned, was not preserved by Jews. Although they had similar names, and both were originally written in the second century BCE by Jews, the two books of Maccabees are quite different. First Maccabees focuses on the period when the revolt begins, and the establishment of the Hasmonean dynasty. Its tone is sober and authoritative, and reads exactly like what it is, a court history. Second Maccabees is a more complex and colorful document. It begins with the festival letter I've already mentioned, attempting to convince the Jews of Egypt to celebrate Hanukkah. It then contains a second preface, in which we are told that the book is actually an abridgment of a much longer five-book history written by a certain man named Jason of Cyrene. Jason of Cyrene's book was too long and boring for the abridger, as he explains, and I quote, I was struck by the mass of statistics and the difficulty which the bulk of the material causes to those wishing to grasp the narratives of this history. I have tried to provide for the entertainment of those who read for pleasure, the convenience of students who must commit the fact to memory, and the profit." of even the casual reader. Jason's original work is now lost, and our only access to it is through this jazzed-up abridgment. Beyond these two books, we have very little evidence testifying to the causes of the Maccabean Revolt. Josephus gives us some background, but much of his account he knows only from the same two books of the Maccabees. Other classical sources give us some information about the antagonist of our story, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the ruler of Seleucid Syria, but nothing really about his activities in Jerusalem and Judea. A few archaeological finds, especially a recently discovered inscription, help to fill out other background issues, but they do not throw any light directly on the causes of the revolt. So we are left more or less where we began with 1st and especially 2nd Maccabees. 2nd Maccabees begins its account with a declaration of the good old days, when Jerusalem was under the rule of the revered high priest Onias Third. Onias Third was the son of Simon II, who was lavishly praised by Bensirah, Ecclesiasticus. Onias thus claimed descent back to Joshua, the first high priest who came back to Jerusalem from exile with Zerubbabel. Onias would have begun his tenure as high priest around 200 BCE. Remember that this is the time during which books such as Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiasticus were written. Under the benevolent rule of the Seleucid king, Antiochus III who, Josephus tells us, granted a special charter to the Jews, allowing them to maintain their temple in customary ways, there was little awareness that Hellenism was in any way a problem. The trouble began not with high-minded ideals, but with some kind of quarrel between Onias and an administrator of the temple, Simon, of the clan of Bilga. The exact nature of the quarrel is not specified, but appears to come down to money. We are told that it concerned the administration of the city market. Resentful of losing the quarrel, Simon complained to the royal court, spitefully telling the king that there was an enormous surplus of riches in the temple. The king sent a minister, Heliodorus, to check things out. Onias insisted that the money was kept in deposit for widows and orphans, as well as for a certain Hercanus, the son of Tobiah, almost certainly a descendant of the wealthy Tobit family whom we already met in our discussion of the Persian period. Heliodorus remained unconvinced. He moved toward the temple through the throngs of mourning Jews, but at the critical moment God struck him. Only through the prayers of Onias was he healed. The upshot was that Heliodorus returned to the king without the money, convinced that the temple was sacred and protected by God. This did not stop Simon, though. While the author of Second Maccabees presents the failure of Heliodorus' mission as the result of a divine miracle, Simon told it as the story of Onias' machinations against the government. By around 175 BCE, the situation had gotten more dangerous for Onias, and he personally went to see the king, but with apparently little result. The reason that he would have been met with a cold shoulder was that another plot was afoot. Onias's own brother, Jason, made a deal with the new king, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. In exchange for the high priesthood, that is, deposing his brother Onias, Jason would give the king a massive amount of treasure from the temple. The king bid. Jason replaced his brother Onias. Jason was ambitious. He instituted a gymnasium to educate young men. As 2 Maccabees chapter 4, verses 11-17 to 17 tells it, He set aside the royal privileges established for the Jews through the agency of John, the father of that Eupolemus who negotiated a treaty of friendship and alliance with the Romans. He abolished the lawful way of life and introduced practices which were against the law. He lost no time in establishing a sports stadium at the foot of the citadel itself and he made the most outstanding of the young men assume the Greek athletes had. So Hellenism reached a high point with the introduction of foreign customs through the boundless wickedness of the impious Jason, no true high priest. As a result, the priests no longer had any enthusiasm for their duties at the altar, but despised the temple and neglected the sacrifices. And in defiance of the law, they eagerly contributed to the expenses of the wrestling school, whenever the opening gong called them. They placed no value on their hereditary dignities, but cared above everything for Hellenic honors. Because of this, grievous misfortune beset them, and the very men whose way of life they strove after and tried so hard to imitate turned out to be their vindictive enemies. To act profanely against God's laws is no light matter; as will become clear in due time. First Maccabees contains a somewhat different condensed version that omits all mention of Jason and Simon. At that time, First Maccabees chapter one verses eleven to fifteen begins. There appeared in Israel a group of renegade Jews who incited the people. Let us enter into a covenant with the Gentiles round about, they said, because disaster upon disaster has overtaken us since we segregated ourselves from them. The people thought this was a good argument, and some of them, in their enthusiasm, went to the king and received authority to introduce non-Jewish laws and customs. They built a sports stadium in the Gentile style in Jerusalem. They removed their marks of circumcision and repudiated the holy covenant, they intermarried with Gentiles and abandoned themselves to evil ways. What can we make of these testimonies? Let's begin with the basic fact recounted in both accounts. A gymnasium was established in Jerusalem. Remember that a gymnasium was more than a sports stadium. It was a critical institution of the polis, an independent Greek city. According to 2 Maccabees, This is apparently the key to understanding what Jason was up to. He wanted to make Jerusalem a polis. Was this such a bad thing? This is where one must be aware of the agendas of the authors of these ancient sources. For both books, the Maccabean Revolt and the legitimacy of their dynasty was based on the restoration of the temple. For these authors, the fact of the establishment of a gymnasium had to be framed as an issue affecting the workings and purity of the temple. There might well have been some truth to the charges. Some priests undoubtedly would have preferred the gymnasium to the dreary chores that they had to do in the temple. Some Jews might well have tried to hide their circumcisions, so clearly evident in the naked activities that were a normal part of the routine of the gymnasium. It is hard to imagine that the temple was left understaffed, though, or that many Jews would have gone to such extremes to become Greek. The authors clearly needed to discredit Jason, who after all actually had a legitimate claim to the high priesthood as the brother of Onias. But Jason's actual attempt to make Jerusalem into a polis might not have been all that bad. In fact, if this was the end of the story, with Jason turning Jerusalem into a polis with a few unintended consequences, things might have remained relatively calm. But, of course, this is not the end of the story. As Jason was settling into his new role as high priest, a new king of Egypt was enthroned. As you remember, since 200 BCE, there was a kind of detente between the Seleucid and Ptolemaic kingdoms, with Palestine under Seleucid control. The new Ptolemaic king, Ptolemy VI Philometer, however, seemed to have ambitions, and Antiochus sent forces down through Palestine to counter the rising threat in Egypt. Despite the assertions of the author of Second Maccabees, it is unlikely that Antiochus got anywhere near Jerusalem. Nevertheless, the rising political tensions would have created uncertainty, and perhaps even a sense of opportunity, among the political players in Jerusalem. As the tensions between the Seleucids and Ptolemies mounted, Jason made a move to solidify his position by pledging his allegiance and sending a large cash contribution to Antiochus in 171 BCE. He picked his messenger poorly. He sent the money with Menelaus, the brother of Simon, who you will remember was the antagonist of Onias, Jason's brother. Upon arriving at the court, Menelaus betrayed Jason, and pledged to the king far more money than Jason did in exchange for making him high priest. Menelaus returned to Jerusalem with the high priesthood, and Jason fled. But Menelaus did not seem to have the money to make good on his bribe, and he and the commander of Antiochus's forces in Jerusalem were summoned back to the king's court. Menelaus left his brother, Lysimachus in charge. Things were getting dangerous. Before Menelaus arrived at the court, Antiochus left in order to put out two revolts caused by the uncertainty of the approaching confrontation between the two great kingdoms. He left his deputy, Andronicus, in charge, who Menelaus quickly bribed with gold from the temple. Menelaus convinced Andronicus to finally kill Onias, who had been living in exile. Andronicus' greed overshadowed his judgment. The killing caused Jewish unrest, and upon returning from putting down the revolts in the kingdom, Antiochus had Andronicus executed. The situation was dicey, and when Lysimachus continued to take money out of the temple to pay off Menelaus' pledges, the pot boiled over. There was a riot in Jerusalem. The responsibility was laid on Menelaus, but he again managed to worm out of trouble by means of further bribes. Now in 168 BCE, as Antiochus was mounting another attack on Egypt, there was a rumor that Menelaus had died. Jason had been waiting in exile, and with a large force he attacked Jerusalem. Jason succeeded only in killing civilians, Menelaus took refuge in the Seleucid citadel. Having failed, Jason went back into exile, this time to the satisfaction of the author of Second Maccabees for good. Jason's attack was the last straw. Antiochus' attack in Egypt had failed. He, in fact, had been humiliated by the representatives of an ascending Rome, allied now with Ptolemy. Assuming now that Jerusalem, too, was taking advantage of his weakness in rebelling, Antiochus launched his own savage attack on the city. The author of 2 Maccabees claimed that 40,000 were killed and another 40,000 were sold into slavery. The numbers must be wildly exaggerated, but they at least reflect the trauma that it left. According to the author, Antiochus, led by Menelaus, then entered and plundered the temple. Whether Antiochus himself really was there or not, Menelaus and Lysimachus had by this time racked up a sizable debt to Antiochus, which would have significantly increased in light of what was perceived as a failed rebellion. The plundering of the temple, the author of 2 Maccabees piously notes, was possible only because the Jews had made God angry enough to temporarily desert it and things went from bad to worse. Antiochus ordered another slaughter in Jerusalem, this one taking place on the Sabbath. It was at this moment, the author tells us, in chapter five, verse 27, that Judas, also called Maccabeus, with about nine others, escaped into the desert, where he and his companions lived in the mountains, fending for themselves like the wild animals. They remained there living on what vegetation they found, so as to have no share in the pollution. And pollution there was. Antiochus is said to have sent an elderly Athenian to force the Jews to abandon their ancestral customs and no longer regulate their lives according to the laws of God. The temple in Jerusalem was dedicated to the Olympian Zeus, and non-Jews filled the temple with abominations and prostitutes. On the monthly celebration of the king's birthday, the author tells us, the Jews were driven by brute force to eat the entrails of the sacrificial victims. And on the feet of Dionysus, they were forced to wear ivy wreaths and join the procession in his honor. Jews were killed for observing the Sabbath and for circumcising their children. This was said to occur not only in Jerusalem, but in the neighboring Greek cities too. Scholars have long been puzzled by this persecution. It is actually unparalleled in the ancient world. Assuming that the author of 2 Maccabees is reporting correctly, where would Antiochus get this idea? And why would he do it? What was in it for him? The book of 1 Maccabees corroborates the account of 2 Maccabees. In its author's language, the king begins with the decree that His subjects were all to become one people and to abandon their own laws and religion. The emphasis is different here. Jews are not particularly singled out, but are persecuted instead because they, unlike all the other nations, did not follow the king's decree. First Maccabees adds that there was also an imperial assault on the Torah itself. All scrolls of the law which were found were torn up and burnt, anyone discovered in possession of a book of the covenant or conforming to the law was put to death by the king's sentence. This general persecution went alongside the desecration of the temple. On the 15th day of the month of Kislev in 167 BCE the abomination of desolation was erected on the temple's altar and ten days later that is, the 25th of Kislev, 167 BCE, they began offering sacrifices on it. This desecration of the temple is also mentioned repeatedly in the book of Daniel, although Daniel has no explicit mention of a general religious persecution. I'm not sure what to make of these testimonies. The authors of 1st and 2nd Maccabees could, of course, be exaggerating the extent of the persecution. It would serve their purposes well, setting up the rescue of Israel by Judah Maccabee and his gang. But something, whatever it was and to whatever extent, probably did happen. This explains the appearance of yet another new phenomenon in 2 Maccabees, martyrdom. According to 2 Maccabees 6-7, to seven, Jews began to submit to public and gruesome deaths rather than eat forbidden meats. Chapter 7 contains a horrifying account of a woman who watched with approval as her sevens' children were tortured to death. As the torturers themselves pleaded with the mother to counsel her youngest son to eat the meat so at least he might live, she said to him in Hebrew, My son, take pity on me. I carried you nine months in the womb, suckled you three years, reared you and brought you up to your present age. I beg you, child, look at the sky and the earth. See all that is in them, and realize that God made them out of nothing, and that man comes into being the same way. Do not be afraid of this butcher, except death, and prove yourself worthy of your brothers, so that by God's mercy I may receive you back again along with them. Her son, now fortified against the entreaties of his persecutors, met his doom to be followed immediately by his own mother. This is almost certainly a fictitious account, but there is no good reason to doubt its underlying assumption that some Jews gave up their lives rather than be forced to violate the will of their God. Whatever form Antiochus's actual persecution took, and whatever its actual scope, it gave birth to martyrdom. Probably directly linked to martyrdom, in fact, enabling it, is the rise of a concept of an afterlife. The mother expresses the hope that she will again receive her children after death. When and how is not clear. Does she mean as disembodied souls in heaven or as resurrected individuals in the world to come? Either way you take it, though, it reflects a belief in an individual's life after death, which, if present at all in earlier literature, is certainly more implicit than than explicit. It is confidence in a life after death that enables martyrdom. Just when things seemed to be at their bleakest, Judah Maccabee emerged from the wilderness. In 165 BCE, Judah organized partisans and they began what we can somewhat anachronistically refer to as guerrilla operations in the towns and countryside. These small gains eventually came to the notice of the king, and the ruthless general Nicanor was sent to crush the rebellion. Judah divided his army into four, putting the other three under the commands of his brothers Simon, Josephus, and Jonathan. Another brother, Eliezer, read the Torah out loud. They prayed to God and then engaged. Nicanor was routed, and only the advent of the Sabbath prevented Judah's army from pursuing the remnant of his army. After the Sabbath was over, we read in 2 Maccabees 8, verses 28-29, to they distributed some of the spoils among the victims of persecution and the widows and the orphans. The remainder they divided among themselves. This done altogether made supplication to the merciful Lord, praying him to be fully reconciled with his servants. I have in these last words on Judah Maccabees' rebellion been following 2nd Maccabees. But it is precisely here that 1st Maccabees picks up with far more detail. According to 1st Maccabees, it was actually Judah's brother, Mattathias, who started resisting. He and his family, the author carefully writes, were from a noted priestly family in Jerusalem who, at the time of the rebellion, were living in the town of Modiin. This is a critical detail for the family's ultimate claim to the high priesthood. In any event, according to 1st Maccabees, Judah's forces saw a bit of battle before Nicanor's forces approached. 1st Maccabees then describes Judah's tactics in much more detail but with more or less the same outcome. The Seleucids are routed, and their camp plundered, although 1 Maccabees does not include any mention of an approaching Sabbath. Although Antiochus had died in great pain as befits an enemy of God, the author of 2 Maccabees gleefully relates, the Seleucid army tried again the next year, but it, too, was again defeated. It was at this point, in 164 BCE, that Judah marched on Jerusalem. Judah and his men retook the temple, and he appointed unblemished priests to clean it out. This turned out to be a little bit tricky. The altar had been desecrated by the abomination of desolation, but the stones were still holy. In the end, Judah decided to destroy the altar and store the stones, but to build a new altar there from different stones. They rebuilt what they needed to, and set up the lamps, breads of presents, and reinstituted the incense sacrifice. It was then on the 25th day of Kislev in 164 BCE that the sacrifices were reinstated. We read in 1 Maccabees 4, verse 29, Then Judas, his brothers, and the whole congregation of Israel decreed that the rededication of the altar should be observed with joy and gladness at the same season each year for eight days, beginning on the 25th of Kislev. The measure, according to 2 Maccabees, chapter 10, verse 8, was passed by public assembly. The struggles of Judah and his brothers, as we will see in the next episode, are still not quite over. But at the very end of 164 BCE, Exactly three years after sacrifices began to be offered on the abomination of desolation, the temple is firmly in Jewish hands, and will remain so for the next century or so. I want to conclude with a somewhat provocative question. Did it have to happen? The story of Hanukkah is sometimes told as an inevitable clash between Judaism and Hellenism. If it wasn't Antiochus, it would have been someone else. Yet the story that I have told here is different. It is a story in which greed and family rivalries, both within and between families, erupted in totally unpredictable ways to lead to a national calamity that nobody could have believed was possible. Antiochus was not supposed to see Jason's attack on Jerusalem as a rebellion against Seleucid sovereignty. Nor could anyone expect Antiochus' harsh and, more importantly, unprecedented response. There was nothing inevitable here. There was no clash of cultures. Remember that as soon as the temple was purified, the public assembly voted to establish a Jewish holiday, a Hellenistic procedure, if there ever was one. If Hanukkah and the rededication of the temple could be said to mark a historical turning point, I think that that point should best be seen not as the end of the rebellion, but rather as the beginning of the Hasmonean rule. In the next episode, we will see how the struggle of Judah and his brothers were far from over, and we'll consider the next century or so of the independent Jewish state ruled by their descendants. You have been listening to the podcast From Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadlow. The original score is by Neil Ginsberg with vocals by Michelle Tattenbaum. Technical assistance was provided by the Language Resource Center and the Instructional Technology Group, both at Brown University. More information can be found at msatlow.blogspot.com or at mlsatlow.com on the public education page. I welcome your comments. Thank you for listening.